In his letters to a young poet, Rainer Marie Rilke writes this, be patient towards all that is unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms, like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue, do not now seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Try to love the questions themselves, he said. Live the questions now. Live along some distant day into the answer. That's beautiful, Rainer, but not very practical for the question I've been pondering. The question I've been wondering about is, should I share my ice cream? I have trouble loving and living into that question. Anyone else have this question unresolved in your heart? It's okay, we're at church and we practice confession here. So a show of hands, if you have ever done one of the following things. Attempted to hide the ice cream in the freezer, say somewhere behind the frozen vegetables. Label the ice cream container with your name. <laughs> Have you ever purchased multiple containers of ice cream so that one of them could be your very own? Have you ever done this and then took some of out of the other one, the one without your name on it? <laughs> Have you ever transferred the ice cream to another container in order to camouflage the contents? See those hands. <laughs> It's okay, the altar is open this morning. Ice cream is difficult to share. And you know, I try to be a good parent. I do research and seek advice, but some of the things in parenting is uncharted territory. Like what do you do when there's not enough ice cream left in the carton for the whole family to split it up in a way that everyone has a few bites? Nobody does a podcast on that one. So at our house, we instituted a rule that if there's not enough to split between all four of our kids, the parents get to eat it all. I mean, have to eat it all. <clears throat> it's tough, but it's the fair thing to do, right? I know there may be a whole thing of butter pecan in the freezer too, but, but the kids don't like that stuff. I'm not going to make my kids eat ice cream they don't like so that they have to deconstruct their dessert later in life. So I'll have to eat the ice cream they don't like and the ice cream they do like when there's not enough to split it up. Being a parent is a tough job, but someone has to do it. I'm not the only one who's struggled with this existential question of, should I share my ice cream? In fact, um, the character Gerald does. This is one of my favorite uh, picture books. Would you mind if I read it? to you all this morning. This might be the best part of the sermon for some of you, but this is Should I Share My Ice Cream by Mo Willems. Ice cream, get your cold ice cream for a hot day. Oh boy, ice cream. One ice cream, please. Here you go. Oh boy, oh boy, I love ice cream. 
Wait, Piggy loves ice cream too. Piggy is my best friend. Should I share my ice cream with her? Should I share my awesome, yummy, sweet, super great, tasty, nice, cool ice cream? Hmm. 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 Maybe Piggy does not like this flavor. Sharing a flavor Piggy does not like would be wrong. I will eat the ice cream. Wait. Piggy will like this flavor. It is very yummy. I will share my ice cream. It will not be easy. Hey, Piggy is not here. She does not know I have ice cream. I will eat the ice cream. Where is Piggy? What if she is sad somewhere? I must find her. When I do, I will say, would you like some of my ice cream? Then she will say, thank you. That would cheer me up. Then I will give her my ice cream to share. Yum. Then my best friend will be happy. I will do it. I will share my ice cream. No! Now Piggy cannot have any of my ice cream. Now I cannot have any of my ice cream. I blew it. You look sad. Would you like some of my ice cream? Thank you. That would cheer me up. Yum. Hmm. That was not my plan. Oh, well, this works too. The end. <laughs> Perhaps you're wondering why we're talking about ice cream this morning. Well, ice cream is the context simply for talking about sharing. Why we share, why we don't share, why it's hard to share at times, and what's really at the heart of sharing. There are all sorts of studies on sharing. Acts of kindness can boost your immune system and help treat depression. That's motivation enough, right? But generosity also fires off endorphins, the feel-good chemicals in our brain that release oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. Some have called it the helper's high. In other words, neuroscience tells us that sharing is a good idea because when you share your ice cream, it is a lot like eating ice cream. Even when we are good at sharing ice cream, however, it's probably because of competing motivations, according to psychologists. Perhaps giving is for us a bid for connection a search for security, a way of feeling needed by someone else. Maybe we share ice cream for the ice cream sharing recognition. Giving can be about identity formation. We want to be seen as givers. Or, and this is at least partly true for all of us, I'm sure, we share ice cream simply because we want others to enjoy ice cream too. Okay, enough about ice cream for now. My question is, is it all brain science? 
Or does the Bible have anything unique to say about sharing? Is there a different nudge for followers of Jesus when it comes to generosity, hospitality, and giving? Let's look at our story in 1 Kings chapter 17. The first thing that you'll notice about this remarkable story is its peculiar place. Within a history of kings of Israel, we are giving a story about a prophet, a widow, and her son. But just before this particular scene, we do read about a king. His name is Ahab. Maybe you've heard of him. Ahab is literally the worst of the worst when it comes to Israel's king, kings. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, the passage tells us. Not only does Ahab tolerate idolatry, when he marries Jezebel, he begins to serve and worship Baal. He brings back Asherah poles and he rebuilds Jericho, true to Joshua's prophecy, sacrificing his oldest and youngest sons in the process. Needless to say, this gets Yahweh's attention. Enter the prophet, Elijah, and his announcement. This is what he said. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. As you, as you could imagine, this in turn gets Ahab's attention and leads to Jezebel killing all of Yahweh's prophets, except those who we find out later were hidden by Obadiah. With his life in danger, Elijah goes into hiding and Yahweh sends him to a safe place near the Kareth Brook. There he has water to drink and scavenged food from ravens. I think it's important to note that Elijah, while being protected by Yahweh, is not exempt from the drought. The prophet feels the effects of the prophecy. He is hunted and hungry. Elijah stays until the brook dries up. And this is where things get really interesting. Yahweh tells Elijah to go live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. And if you don't know where that's at, it's where Jezebel is from. Seems like a safe place to go, right? Then Yahweh adds, I have instructed a widow there to feed you. When you read this story, events are told back to back in quick succession. And so the challenge when we read it is to slow down. Think about this before we move forward. Yahweh is having conversation with a widow outside of Israel, a widow from Baal country. This scene shapes the way Jesus sees his mission when he launches it in Luke chapter four, we read later in scripture. And now we can see that the Lord is at work outside of Israel. And so Elijah goes and he finds the widow outside of the village gates gathering sticks. Would you bring me a little water in a cup, he asks. And when she goes to get the water, Elijah adds, bring me a bite of bread too. And her reply is telling, isn't it? I swear with the Lord your God, see, she knows Yahweh, that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house and I have only a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of a jug. 
I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die, she says. Under normal circumstances, the widow bound by cultural norms of hospitality would have gotten the bread immediately. But this is a drought that has led to a famine. Her reply to the prophet could simply be an explanation of her need and reason for an exemption from the request. Or it could reflect the conflict that's within her. The tension she feels with Yahweh's preemptive instructions. Her neighbors likely credited the drought to Yahweh, not Ahab's sin. The drought that has left her and her son with only a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of a jug, it may even be the drought that has made her a widow. Share now with a prophet of Yahweh It's absurd, and at this point, impossible. There's nothing left. Surely if Yahweh has a plan, it isn't this. Maybe she might have wondered, Baal will bring rain. Again, we must slow down, unpack the loaded phrases, imagine what is going on in the margins between the words, When we read the passage this way, what we see is that the Bible doesn't shy away from the harsh, devastating reality of the famine. This is a gut-wrenching scene. A hungry prophet, a starving widow and her son. There is no joy in the last meal. Its only meaning is that death is near, a painful death. And we must linger here. We must see the pain and hear the desperation, the doubt. We must smell the fire, oil, and bread. Taste the tears. It is from this visceral moment that the death announcer, Israel's troublemaker, he would be called later, Elijah, brings a follow-up message. This one is not a curse, but a blessing. Though the rain would not yet return, Yahweh says that there will always be flour and oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. Can the widow trust this man of God? Sometimes a taste of poverty can make one share more easily than before. Sometimes it can cause one to hold on tighter for fear of being without again. Why is it hard to share sometimes fear, unresolved trauma? But the prophet has a promise from Yahweh. Can the widow hope? She doesn't yet fully, it seems, but what else does she have to lose? So she did as Elijah said, the passage tells us, not knowing if she gave away her last meal. For Yahweh's promise could not be tested until the next one. That's radical sharing. This is the unique sort of generosity found in scripture. One prompted by a voice outside of one's head. A voice that contradicts reality. A voice that asks you to trust with everything. A generosity by faith. Perhaps a better word than sharing here is offering. 
sacrifice. We know how the story ends, but she didn't in that moment. She is in the story, barely holding on to her son and her own life, yet she shares, even while seemingly still doubting. One cannot read the story of another widow in the New Testament. The one who gave her last two small coins without thinking of the widow of Zarephath, the prototype of sacrificial giving. And this is what happens next. She and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There will always be enough flour and olive oil left in your containers, just as the Lord has promised through Elijah. Just when the brook ran dry, just when all that was left was crumbs, a sudden joyous turn. Her son would eat. She would live. There's a future after today. In fact, there would be many days. Six months, at least from the context clues. There would be many meals. I wonder what the conversations were like between the prophet, the widow, and the son here. You see, I'm fascinated by this miracle because God chooses to pull it off by bringing these unlikely characters together around a table, each with something to bring, not much, just words and just crumbs. And I would love to listen in. I bet they talked about Baal and Yahweh, the meaning of the drought. They would have shared their stories. As we'll see in the next big scene, they would have shared their stories to a level of vulnerability to where the prophet knows the widow's sins. This is how often God works in the world, at the places where people's lives intersect, in mutuality, at tables, through stories around, around food, no, no matter how meager the meals. At the height of our joy in the story, however, it takes another turn. The writer tells us that the son became ill and he grew worse and worse and then died. There was no breath left in him, the Hebrew literally says. This sets off a series of brutally honest prayers by the widow and then in turn by the prophet. Each of them proclaiming their why to Yahweh. The widow thinks the prophet has betrayed her because of her sins. Elijah appeals to Yahweh's seemingly lack of mercy on the widow who has shown him radical hospitality. And both prophet and widow get a front row seat to what Yahweh is really up to. The son has died, not because of the widow's sin, not because of Yahweh's lack of mercy, quite the opposite. Yahweh allows the boy to die so that Elijah could resuscitate him as a sign. But what kind of a sign? We began by noting that this story has a peculiar placement in the Old Testament. The tale of a widow among Israel's history of kings. Why is it here? Perhaps we've been reading it all wrong. What if this actually is a story about a king? This might explain the ending. The return of the widow's son's breath is a sign 
that Yahweh rules Israel, not Ahab. Yahweh reigns over all the earth and controls the weather, not Baal. You see what Ahab has brought to the people, what Baal cannot do to stop the drought? This is a story about a king after all. And what kind of a king? One that takes care of his servants. One that looks after the widows. One that returns life to those who have faced death. The timing is everything in this passage. Just as the brook dries up, just as the flower runs out, just as the last breath exhales, that's when Yahweh intervenes. Yahweh is telling Israel something about himself and what he is doing for her. Yahweh is providing for Israel like he's providing for Elijah. He is caring for Israel as he's caring for the widow. He is bringing Israel back to life as he brings life back to the child. Yahweh is exposing Ahab's sin and revealing Baal as a sham in order to bring his people back. That is what Yahweh is like. And after many days, the passage tells us, the widow believes. Do you believe it? Maybe it's hard to believe right now. Maybe you find yourself somewhere in the story, rejected like the prophet, abandoned like the widow, powerless like the boy. Look, there's nothing worse and more unhelpful when believing is difficult for someone to come along and to push belief on you to give you all the reasons to believe, to tell you to believe better. I don't want to do that today. But let me share something I found in the story. It's been helpful for me. But let's first bring it back to ice cream. That's okay. Gerald really messes things up, doesn't he? He tried to share, but his determination to do good to do good gave way to searching for a way out. His generous ideation broke down into self-serving justification. His stalling and second thoughts led to moralizing and then to secrecy. And by the time empathy seems to kick in, he held on too long and the opportunity passed him. But that's not the end of Mo Willem's story, is it? Gerald blew it, but Piggy comes through. And Piggy shared with him. Does the faith of the widow seem out of reach to you today? That's okay. Because here's what I found in the passage. Maybe you saw it too. There's a cup and some bread. There's a last supper. An upper room. A count to three. A son who comes back to life. This story is not just a microcosm of what Yahweh is doing for Israel. It is a sign of what Yahweh will do through Jesus for the whole world. Amen. And when we see Jesus in this story, we don't just see a king that rescues. We see a king that suffers with and eventually leads the way out. Jesus is the prophet, rejected, 
yet obedient. Jesus is the widow, abandoned, but offers everything. Jesus is the son, dead, but in a sudden joyous turn, resurrected and reigning. Is obedience tough right now? That's okay. Jesus did it for you. He believed on your behalf. He obeyed knowing what was to come. Is sharing difficult for you right now? That's okay. Jesus held back nothing. Have you experienced unspeakable loss? That's okay. Jesus is with you. And death does not have the final word. So let me ask us this morning. Let me ask you, where are you in the story? And what might Jesus be saying to you? Are you the prophet? Do you feel rejected in your life, perhaps by friends or family or in your workplace? Or maybe you're the prophet in the sense that you're staring at a dried up brook. Are you the widow? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel alone? Do you feel like you have nothing to give, let alone take care of yourself? Are you the son, helpless, powerless, at the mercy of others, denied any agency of your own? And church, we must always ask, are we Ahab? Have we been enticed away from Jesus by competing allegiances? Have we neglected the vulnerable ones who we are commanded to care for? Have we chased away the prophets because their voices make us uncomfortable? Where are you in the story? And what might Jesus be saying to you today? Perhaps Jesus is saying to you today, as the prophet, I am with you. The story you are living, it may not get any easier yet. You are not alone. As the widow, maybe Jesus is saying, there will always be food on your table. You won't know where it came from or how it got there, but I will provide. Don't be afraid. Maybe you're the whole bunch of them. And Jesus is saying, come out of isolation into community. Share in the redemptive story of someone else as you share your own. Maybe you're the son and Jesus says to you, there is hope, even in unspeakable loss. Maybe you're Israel. And Jesus is saying, repent, return. Maybe you're Ahab. Remember those in your community who have been neglected. And perhaps even you're the widow. And Jesus is saying to give. And at this point, it seems absurd, impossible even. But what little you have might be the ingredients God uses in his redemptive plan for the world. I've given you some ideas, but I know Christ is with us. God is speaking to you this morning. 
We're gonna take a moment of reflection. Just think about these two questions. Where are you in the story? And what might Jesus be saying to you?